Hi, this is John Olson. Thank you for joining us on the National Security This Week podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe so you'll receive a new edition of the podcast every week. Please leave us a review as well and tell others about us. And please contact us with any feedback or opinions you might have by emailing nstw at kymnradio.net. We hope you find the show informative and interesting. Thanks again. National Security This Week, a weekly look at American national security issues. And now, your host, John Olson. Good morning, everyone. It's Wednesday, February 2nd. Happy Groundhog Day. You've joined us for National Security This Week. We get together here on KYMN Radio every Wednesday morning at 9 a.m. to discuss national security, and we're joined by guests from our local area, from around Minnesota, and from across the nation to help us explore American national security. Longtime listeners will recall the term DIME, D-I-M-E, which stands for Diplomacy, Information, Military, and Economic Tools. These are the tools of national power that every nation possesses. We spend a lot of time on this show focusing on the diplomatic and military tools of power, but occasionally we get into the economic side of things, and today is going to be just such a day. Our guest today is Rana Faruhar. Rana Faruhar is a global business columnist and associate editor at the Financial Times based in New York. She's also CNN's global economic analyst. Uh, Rana Farrar has authored two books. Her first book, Makers and Takers, The Rise of Finance and the Fall of American Business, is about why capital markets no longer support business. It was shortlisted for the Financial Times McKinsey Book of the Year Award in 2016. Her second book, Don't Be Evil, How Big Tech Betrayed Its Founding Principles and All of Us, was named the Porchlight Business Book of the Year. Faruhar is the author, along with her colleague Edward Luce, of the Swamp Notes newsletter, which covers the intersection of money, power, and politics in America. That's got to be a fun one to write. Uh, Prior to joining the Financial Times and CNN, Faruhar spent six years at Time as an assistant managing editor and economic columnist. Uh, Rana Faruhar previously spent 13 years at Newsweek as an economic and foreign affairs editor and a foreign correspondent covering Europe and the Middle East. During that time, she was awarded the German Marshall Fund's Peter Weitz Prize for Transatlantic Reporting. She's also received awards and fellowships from institutions such as the Johns Hopkins School of International Affairs and the East-West Center. Rana Fruhar is a life member of the Council on Foreign Relations. Uh, Fruhar graduated in 1992 from Barnard College at Columbia University. She lives in Brooklyn with her husband, uh, who is the author, John Sedgwick, and her two children. Uh, Rana Fruhar, welcome to National Security This Week. I think we have you on mute right now. Uh, there so we for go. Audience, Sorry about that. Yeah, no problem. Uh, <laughs> you, you and I are on Zoom this morning, Rana. So uh, you're, are you sitting at home in uh, in your office, or uh, where are you? Where are you I at am. I am. I'm. I'm here in. Uh, I'm here in Brooklyn, and um, I have to apologize in advance for any bandwidth issues. I'll just reconnect if we if we get knocked off. But very happy to be here, John. Really appreciate your uh, interest. I'm excited to have you on the show today. We have a lot to talk about. This is a this is a topic like I, I admitted to you in my emails that I don't know as much about the economic side of things as I wish I did. Uh, so this is going to be a great opportunity for me to learn as well. I, I often start the show by trying to learn a little bit more about my guests' background. You completed your undergraduate degree at uh, at Barnard College. Can you tell us a little bit about your path into journalism? Um, yes, absolutely. Uh, like many people that get into this business, it was sort of accidental for me. I was actually a failed pre-med student. 
you know, it's you, you, you grow up, um, you know, I, I have my dad's an immigrant, you know, my mom's second generation American and, you, you know, immigrant parents, they like to hear, I'm going to be a doctor. <laughs> and, and so, so that sounded good, but, you know, it wasn't for me. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I graduated and I needed a job, needed to start making a living right away. And I was in New York, so I got a job at a magazine. And it just right away felt like the right fit for me. I loved the fact that you could be curious about anything. You know, you could call up anybody. You could have interesting conversations every day. And um, you could also kind of have a short attention span. You know, you do one story <laughs> one week, you get into another topic. It allows you to be um, a little bit of a kid, you know, um, throughout your career. You can you can just experiment and um, and stay curious, and it's been great for me. I, you, you've tapped into my secret for why I do this radio show. <laughs> so you're reporting. <laughs> it's fun, right? It you is. You can call really up is. anybody you want and yep. just, you know, have, have cool conversations. <laughs> That's right. So your reporting uh, has been focused on economics for much of your career, uh, but you also uh, tackled the additional complex field of, of foreign affairs during your time at, at, at Newsweek. Uh, let me ask you this. As you've gained experience in these two areas over the course of your career, what, what insights have you have you sort of spotted or, or gained through the relationship between economics and national security decision-making? I mean, how, how often are national security decisions made based on economic necessity? So it's a really interesting question. Um, I didn't, to be honest with you, when I started out my career in news, and, and that was a little bit of a progression. So to back up, um, when I came out of college, got a job actually in, in a life, at a lifestyle magazine, you know, I did kind of soft features, decided I really wanted to go into hard news and um, politics and security and topics like that, they're actually pretty competitive to break into. It tends to be kind of a closed circle. So I got a job in, in business reporting. I started working for Forbes magazine um, and that just turned me on to a whole new world and a whole new lens actually for looking at stories. So, you know, political stories, are typically not talked about in an economic way and oftentimes you won't even see any economic figures in them you know you mm -hmm. you you see a story about the Ukraine and Russia and Europe and you know you're seeing the surface of there's conflict um, here's what NATO is doing but you're not hearing about um, several decades of dysfunctional energy politics mm -hmm. or the fact that there's been this interesting pipeline deal cut that was actually um, beneficial to some former German politicians, et cetera, et cetera. Anyway, when I was at Forbes, I began to really kind of pull back the scrim on, wow, at core, everything is about um, following the money yep. and, and money, <laughs> money and power, really. Yep. I mean, it sounds a bit cynical, but, but that's how a lot of decision making gets done. So, um, so I, I continued on with economic reporting throughout my career. Um, I, I eventually became a foreign correspondent for Newsweek. Um, I ran economics and business for both Newsweek and Time magazine. I, I got a chance to travel um, all across Europe, the Middle East, uh, Asia. And I began to um, really tune into uh, the way in which multinational companies were in some ways doing diplomacy mm -hmm. for the U.S. I mean, they were very much part of the diplomatic political conversation. Um, globalization and the agenda for globalization was kind of set by American companies. And in some sometimes politicians and companies were working, you know, quite hand in hand um, around different agenda issues. 
it wasn't um, always explicitly so, but that was that was a serious undercurrent um, of what was happening in trade relations. I began to really focus on, wow, uh, you know, when we're cutting a trade deal with X Y nation, that's got some really big implications for politics at home, um, and we can dig more deeply into that. I have some pretty strong opinions on. Um, trade policy over the last two decades and how it's led us to the political moment that we, we happen to be in and the security moment. Yeah. Um, but, you know, suffice to say, I began to see that um, following the money and following the power was was a great lens for me as a journalist and really, I think, has informed most of my work. You know, it's interesting. I had uh, Juan Zarati on the show uh, a couple months back. Uh, he was uh, uh, really instrumental in in sort of creating the capabilities at the Treasury uh, that allowed us to go after terrorism funding in different ways. And, and he's looked at a lot of these different compliance issues. And, and he, he said the same thing that you're saying right now. It really is about following the money and you can find out what is happening and why it's happening and who's benefiting from it as well. Uh, your time at Newsweek uh, probably provided you some insight in this uh, intersection of economics and national security. Uh, and I'd like to try and focus on some of those areas today, if that's okay. And maybe we just start sure. our discussion here at home with ways in which economics and national security really do collide. Uh, one of your articles at the Financial Times talks about an American industrial strategy. Uh, can you talk a bit about what an industrial strategy is and why it matters? And maybe about America's awakening recently to, the, to having a need for and developing such a strategy? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so industrial strategy, sometimes called industrial policy, kind of has a little bit of a third rail terminology in, in the U.S., or it has done. It's sometimes associated with central planning, you know, a la um, Soviet socialist style central planning. But really what, I, what I've come to understand um, reporting internationally is that Industrial planning is something that actually most nations, most rich nations in particular outside of the U.S. actually do. So um, in Europe, uh, you look at France and Germany, um, the way in which the government, uh, businesses, civic society, labor unions all kind of work together um, around economic goals. Um, same, same in France, you know, you would, you would have a kind of a discussion at the policy level. Well, we want to support um, high-tech aeronautic um, engineering. And then you would have, you know, certain kinds of money flows being directed to these industries. Now, a lot of times in the U.S., when we hear about industrial planning, industrial strategy, we think about things like Solyndra, for example. You know, that's the famous, <laughs> the famous, famous failed example yeah. of um, Obama-era uh, industrial planning. You know, uh, money gets funneled into a company. It kind of, you know, builds a bridge to nowhere, and people are like, "Why are our tax dollars being spent on this?" Um, but I would say that uh, industrial planning. There's a spectrum, right? And you can go from very heavy state top-down efforts, um, the Soviet system, which obviously collapsed on itself, but even something like the French system, which some people would argue is a little bit too much uh, intervention, to something more like the German system, which I would argue actually has served that country very well, and on to some of the Asian models, and in particular China, which um, is a very, very interesting example. And, you know, we can go deeper on this, but the way in which the state is um, 
supporting certain strategic sectors. So in, in China, for example, there's, uh, I believe it's either 12 or 13 state designated strategic sectors. And those would include really high growth areas like um, green batteries, um, quantum computing, artificial intelligence, um, you know, all the stuff essentially that you want to grow, next generation core technologies that are going to fuel economic growth over the next several decades. And the state designates those as um, a kind of ring-fenced areas. So it has more control over who can play in those sandboxes. Um, the companies that are in those areas get additional support. Um, oftentimes, uh, foreign companies may be allowed to come in initially, but then the, the local players will be watching, copying, even you know stealing IP, and um, that's been very well documented. I'll give you an example, actually, from, from some of my own reporting in China. I was there, gosh, I guess it was maybe 15 years ago at this stage, and I, I've been to China many times. Um, and I was, at the time, um, the government was getting very involved in, in supporting green technology, clean tech. And in particular, it wanted to get big in the wind turbine and solar panel industries. And there was a Danish company that was playing in the market at that point. They were actually number one in the wind turbine market, a company called Vestas. And I was talking to the executive about how their business was going. He's like, oh, it's great. You know, we're doing really well. Uh, I think that we're going to be probably the number four player in about five years. And I said, well, well, wait a minute. You're the number one player right now. What? First of all, what, why are you saying you're going to be number four? Like, that's a good thing. And P.S. Why? How can you be so specific about where you're going to be? And he said, "Oh, well, that's what Beijing has told us." And that was kind of like, "Whoa, okay, this is a whole different game." And so, coming back to your point about why this is important to the U.S. right now, I think what's important is for Americans to understand U.S. companies and the U.S. government are going up against countries that even though they may be signed on to this or that trade deal are not necessarily playing by the same rules. And this is particularly so in China, which is of course the number one um, strategic adversary. That's, you know, a DOD policy, but also the number one economic competitor. Yeah, that, that, uh, that strategic planning on economics, uh, that's something that maybe we should pay more attention to here in the United States. <laughs> so for an, <laughs> yes. for an industrial strategy to work, America obviously needs access to natural resources. And I personally would submit that some of the most important aspects of a national security strategy hinge on access to key industrial components being available. Uh, rare earths, for example, is, is one that has uh, been looked at even on the DOD side. Uh, access to numerous other metals and minerals as well. Uh, how do these uh, natural resource supply chains, how are they impacting foreign affairs these days? Maybe talk a little bit about the U.S. thinking on these issues first, and then we can talk about China, because you'd mentioned China. Yeah, so rare earths are something I've thought about for a long, long time. Um, rare earth minerals, lithium, cobalt, you know, all, all kinds of specific minerals um, are the building blocks of things like green batteries, um, like, uh, you know, certain kinds of high tech components that you need, um, essentially for, for almost anything that runs these days from, from cars to smart homes, all this stuff takes these minerals. Well, um, again, a couple of decades ago, and this kind of goes back to your point on industrial planning. Actually, when I was at Newsweek, I began noticing certain headlines 
you know, not necessarily on page one, maybe on page 15 about, well, China's just bought this new cobalt mine in the Congo, or, um, you know, we're, we're seeing a ring fencing of certain kinds of um, materials for green batteries. Um, China has a long game, a great game about um, mercantilism, economic mercantilism. It is it is essentially ring fencing the national, uh, you know, the, the materials that it needs to build the economy of the future. The U.S. took a different approach. Um, our approach has always been, um, certainly for the last 20 years, but you could argue for the last 40, to kind of let the market do its work, um, privatize as, as much as possible. And that went into areas like national security. I mean, you know, and, and this is something that's been criticized actually by politicians on both sides of the aisle. Sometimes you hear conservative security hawks talking about this, but I've also heard really liberal economists like Joe Stiglitz, for example, talking about why are we privatizing areas um, like, like nuclear power or like the mining of crucial materials that are, are actually crucial for national security. We did do that, and then what you end up with is sometimes foreign ownership or um, you know, a lack of access to those materials. And this really played out, I think it came into the public consciousness, has and is coming, continuing to come into the public consciousness during COVID, because um, suddenly you've got supply chain disruptions that are, that are hitting everything from semiconductors to our food supply. I mean, I, you know, food supply, for example, you don't think of that necessarily as a national security issue in a rich country, yeah. but it's hard to think of anything else that is more about national security. So the pandemic hits, you've got two hyper um, concentrated, very efficient, and I put that in quotes, they're meant, it's meant to maximize, um, you know, uh, cost, you know, reduce costs, maximize efficiency on a balance sheet, but not necessarily resilient. Right. Um, pandemic hits, you've got all the restaurants closing down, you've got people waiting in line at grocery stores, but you've also got farmers having to throw away their crops and dump their milk because these two supply chains are not talking to one another. Now, you're a former intelligence official. Can you imagine a military operation where you had two totally siloed divisions that had no idea what the other one is doing? It's just, but, but no, this no, I is cannot. our food supply. <laughs> Yeah, and I'll, <laughs> you I'll, know, I mean, I'll throw you yeah, one further ahead. on the supply chain side with regards to the pandemic. Uh, this, maybe this is something you can look into a little bit more if you think about it. So, COVID has had about a one point five percent mortality rate for every hundred people who who get it. If there was something far more lethal that became a global pandemic, say a ten percent or even a twenty percent uh, lethality rate, uh, we would shut down everything. I mean, right now we we kept our grocery stores open. Uh, because people had to go to a central place to pick up food. That's the way our supply chain works for feeding our, our people, all 330 million of us. So if we had a 10% or 20% mortality rate on a, on a virus that, it, that was as uh, transmissible as COVID, that's where we would all go to acquire the virus to take it home and kill off ourselves and our families. <laughs> so we better come up with some better thinking on how we do supply chains in the, in the midst of a pandemic uh, going forward. Uh, for our audience, you're listening to KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1, broadcasting out of Northfield, Minnesota. This is National Security This Week, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is Rana Faruhar, and we're discussing the financial and economic implications of American national security challenges. Uh, so, Rana, let's continue on with that discussion. China has had a fairly steady 
strong economic growth for many years. That may be coming to an end. But how does China manage their supply chains for their natural resources? Can you talk a little bit about their methodology? Yeah, it's um, it's very bottom up in the sense that, um, you know, from the 80s onward, when China began to open up its economy, the idea was to lift people out of poverty. And at that time, it had literally billions of people, you know, in poverty um, to lift lift people out of poverty by taking not. I shouldn't say taking, that sounds a little little um, nationalistic perhaps, which I don't want to be, but um, acquiring manufacturing jobs. The problem is those manufacturing jobs were coming from, um, were coming from, from rich countries, you know? So a lot of, um, and, and I grew up in the, in the rural Midwest and in, in the north of Indiana, my dad ran a small manufacturing business. So we kind of lived this, you know? Um, uh, uh, these jobs from the eighties onward, went to China, they built supply chains, built factories, um, uh, acquired raw materials, um, but also acquired uh, technologies and training and expertise from other countries like the US or Europe that were building factories there. And so China slowly but surely kind of went up the food chain. um, And it really built the kind of industrial base that the U.S. built, um, certainly in the post-war period, also to a certain extent in the pre-war period. It kind of replicated that. In fact, Chinese policymakers really did a lot of studying about America's success and um, our own industrial policies. And you know, it has to be—it has to be said. Whenever a new great power rises, you know, they kind of use the same playbook, like the U.S you know, took took a lot of jobs and industry from Britain (laughs) when it was rising and a lot of a lot of intellectual property. I mean, we had our own kind of mercantilism 200 200 years ago. So it's not like this is a a playbook that you don't know. Um, I think one of the issues, though, is that America was a bit naive in thinking that, well, if we let this very large, poor country into the global free market trading system and eventually, you know, ascension to WTO into all of the trade deals that we know about, that as they get richer, they're going to become more like us. So they are going to become a free market liberal democracy. And that is the big um, point of willful blindness, frankly, that I have just never understood. And and it's actually, I think, speaks a little bit to some American arrogance. You know, I mean, when I go over to China, I look around and I think, gosh, this is a this is a humbling place to think about governing. It's a it's a it's a huge country. It's in some ways very like America, huge, diverse, big swaths um, of, of coastal areas that are very different from the inland of the country. I mean, it's a it's a fascinating place. And the idea, and it's also a 6,000 year old culture, the idea that they would somehow just wholesale adopt the political economy of a a nation that, you know, is in in their terms, um, still a newborn, just always seemed a little bit naive to me. Yeah, and the intelligence community, uh, on an analytical side, we refer to that as uh, mirror imaging. We assume that they're going to do what we would do. <laughs> huge, right. Huge mistake. Huge mistake. Well, can I can I ask you a question, John? I, I really, I'm curious. I, I, sure. Sorry to like change change your script up, but I'm really curious because you guys, the the defense community has always understood this. Yeah. The business community has never understood this, and still is fighting against the paradigm shift. 
why, why was there such siloing? Why did that message, that strategic message, never kind of trickle down to CEOs or trickle up, as the case may be? Well, I mean, that's a great question. Um, I don't know if I know the answer for sure, but what I would tell you is that, uh, like, like fellow intelligence community professionals uh, and most of uh, you know, my fellow military officers, we serve in an apolitical capacity, and a lot of what you're talking about are sort of political decision-making. Uh, you know, it's all about the incentives that are built into the system, usually through Congress at the national level, uh, tax policy and things like that that drive behavior across the board, certainly in the economic sphere. Uh, and and the military is not often asked about mm. economic policy. <laughs> I mean, we do have senior officers who who provide their expert military uh, opinion to policymakers, but not generally in the economic policy world. I, I have seen the leaders of the services, the chief of naval operations, chief staff of the Army, Air Force, et cetera, talking a little bit more about the need for a reliable industrial base. And we talked a little bit earlier about uh, sort of a a, a a, uh, an industrial strategy. Certainly, there needs to, needs to be something like that in place for things like shipbuilding, uh, for instance, or manufacturing aircraft, uh, tanks, yeah. things along those lines. Uh, th- that that has actually been something DOD's done fairly well. Uh, they do explain to Congress the importance of of that industrial base. But on a much broader scale, of what you're talking about, we we America, I don't think, has done a very good job of of having a really well-balanced, well-thought-out industrial strategy moving forward. So I'm glad you're, you're, you've are you're been writing about that, talking about those issues. You know, just on, well, thank you for that. I, just just on that note, in my first book, um, you, you all might be interested, your, your listeners might be interested, under Reagan, we actually did have an industrial policy plan. Um, and in, there was, there was a... Um, I don't want to call it a secret project, but it was kind of a a below the radar project called uh, Project Socrates that was actually about connecting the dots between different sorts of um, industrial resources. Okay, let's look at an area like um, semiconductors. How many patents do we have? Where, 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 where's the talent? Where are the factories? Do we have enough resourcing in these areas? And, um, it's fascinating to me that that was something that was done under Reagan because he is often seen as a privatizer deregulator, which was true to a certain extent. But I think also maybe possibly being a conservative, um, you know, there was a little bit more of a sense of defense awareness. Uh, under Bush, that, that, that program actually got uh, scuppered. And under Clinton, I would argue that the situation you know, the, the horse just bolted out of the barn because the trade, the trade philosophy under the Clinton administration was just free trade is great for everybody. You know, there was a sense that um, we didn't need manufacturing. We didn't need to make things. We didn't need to think about the industrial commons. And I remember some of those decisions and how they were hitting businesses in the Midwest and I just, it really pains me because I feel that the decision-making process wasn't well communicated. I actually have an, an anecdote in my next book. Um, I had a conversation with the late labor leader, Richard Trumka, uh, who used yeah. to head the AFL-CIO. He passed away recently. And I was talking to him about um, what was it like in the 90s when some of these trade deals were being cut because... You know, it's all well and good to say, yeah, we don't want to have an economy making widgets. We want to have an economy where people are bankers and software engineers. But but how many bankers and software engineers do we need? And what happens if, you know, our what happens if we actually, you know, our biggest strategic adversary turns out to be making those widgets and where do we get them? 
And um, he said that he, when he talked to Clinton policymakers during that time, Clinton era policymakers, they were very frank about the fact that wages were going to go down in parts of the U.S., but that they would eventually go up and that things would equalize. And he said, well, how long is that going to take? And he said, remembers a conversation with one policymaker where they said three to five generations. <laughs> it was going to take three to five generations. Well, that's strategic thinking. <laughs> right. Yeah. And during that time, you're going to have big swaths of the Midwest and the South and various parts of the country where you're going to get, um, you know, a hollowed out industrial base, destroyed communities. I mean, I watched this happen in my hometown in Frankfurt, you know, yeah. um, the town square died. Um, the factories shut down. Drug use went up. It's just classic deaths of despair. This is something that's been written about wonderful book called deaths of despair by Angus Deaton and Anne Case that looks at how, when you take away jobs, particularly um, for people without college degrees or the ability to, you know, take on the debt to get the college degree, you are tanking entire communities. And then that has a knock-on social and political effect that I think nobody was thinking enough about. Yeah, and I, and I would also add to that that I, I think uh, government makes a mistake when we don't reinvest into those communities that have lost uh, industrial base-centric uh, jobs like coal mining towns and things like that uh, here in the United States. I mean, the coal is dying. I mean, it's the, the entire yeah. markets are driving it away. So what are we doing to invest in those communities? Regardless of which side of the political aisle you're on, we're talking about our fellow Americans. What do you do to invest in, their, in those communities right. to reboot their economies? And right. speaking of some of these uh, these sort of high-end things, uh, let me continue on with that. Uh, so processing of some of those key rare earths, uh, the metals and whatnot, it happens to a profound extent inside China. And then the U.S. imports a great deal of these processed materials needed to make our most high-end electronics, uh, including including military weapons systems. Uh, we have to get yeah. that stuff from China. What What is the risk of continuing to rely on China as our supplier of key processed components like rare earths and under industrial elements. And I ask that because it's part of the industrial strategy, right? This is not sort of nationalism coming out. This is my thought of how do we make sure that American national security interests are protected? And this is a, this key yeah, supply chain well, issue is, is, a, is a big deal. Yeah, 100%. Um, well, I think the risk is huge. And I'm actually hopeful, frankly, that we're beginning to um, to just kind of close the loop here. You know, if you look, there's a body which you'll know of, of course, called CFIUS, which is a it's a it's not a government agency, but it's sort of a it's a body on which um, some government officials, public officials, private officials sit and look at um, uh, foreign capital flows, foreign deals, foreign mergers, and kind of say, is this okay? Is this going to be a national security risk? And if you look at some of the more recent reports, they are absolutely unequivocal in the need to secure things like rare earth materials, but also, and this is interesting, to start thinking not just about the actual physical goods, but about the capital flows that are allowing these sorts of purchases to happen. So the most recent um, CFIUS report was pretty much all about Wall Street still being um, deeply invested in China. Mm. And this is important because if you think about, um, well, it's obvious we need to have national um, uh, reserves or at least 
deals with allies to protect crucial resources, be they cobalt or um, or our meat supply, which P.S., going back to the, the conversation <laughs> about COVID and the food supply, you know, Smithfield's biggest pork producer in the country, Chinese company, right. Chinese owned company, right. you know, wh why did pork prices go spike right after the pandemic? Because China, understandably, from its own point of view, wanted to secure uh, resources for its own population. And the same thing happened, uh, by the way, with PPE. I mean, that was right. that was one of the, one of the <laughs> issues with that. Where are all the cheap masks coming from? Yeah. From China. Yeah. Um, and, you know, on that point, I know I'm kind of jumping around, but this is this is all very much connected on that point. I've had some conversations over the last couple of years with folks in the textile supply chain in the Carolinas. And it's a fascinating story because if you look at an industry like textiles, it was really decimated by cheap Chinese labor in the last two decades. And some people would say, that's fine. That's a low margin industry. Americans don't need to be making $5 t-shirts. They want to be making, um, you know, I don't know, wind turbines. Well, it's all connected. The industrial right. economy is all connected. So if you look at the companies that are left now um, in the supply chain in the Carolinas, it's, it's kind of interesting because they're sort of Darwinian case studies in how to run a company. They're small, mid-sized, family, typically family-owned. They all know each other. They all work together. There's a real ecosystem of competition and cooperation, which is a very Germanic way of doing things. You know, in Germany, you've got a lot of small manufacturers that actually, okay, let's say a big deal comes in from, you know, a Chinese buyer and one person can't fulfill it while they're working together in a community. That's how these guys are working too. So the pandemic hits and um, nobody's buying clothes period or much of anything. And they have these idle factories. Are they gonna lay people off? Well, probably, but then they're like, you know, we could make masks. So let's make masks. Problem is there was nobody in government that was that A, knew the capacity, B, was coordinating it. So these folks actually pulled together in their own um, uh, industry organization and called up um, the Trump uh, administration at that time and said, look, you know, we can do this. We can fill these. And but there was no coordination. I mean, everybody has the right will, but there's no top down coordination. So they ended up, you know, basically take, taking it on by themselves, making a bunch of masks, retooling. And I was on the one hand very inspired by this effort because it showed that there is still talent in this country and 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 resourcing and these guys can retool in 48 hours and make masks on the other hand I've, I've been so disheartened to see that two years on we're right back to where we are and because of loopholes in federal procurement um, legislation states are now going back to buying one cent masks from china which p.s it costs three cents to make a mask so who do you think is you know sewing those masks some child, you know, probably Muslim child in Xinjiang in a forced labor camp. Mm -hmm. You know, these are the, these are the questions. These are the narratives that we need to really get out there and understand why it's important to support and have a little bit of coordination around around this kind of stuff. Yeah, and so you you mentioned uh, so. Let's talk a little bit about one of the big major strategic challenges, uh, global strategic challenges. You mentioned a little bit about China putting a fence around things like green battery technology and, and other things. China is making massive investments into clean energy uh, technologies. We've had the issue of climate change come up on this show quite a bit. 
Uh, we've talked about the national security implications of a climate that produces more intense storms, unpredictable weather, weather patterns that affect uh, crops, and so many other ways in which a changing climate might destabilize the world. It already is destabilizing the world in some parts. Uh, DOD and the U.S. intelligence community, frankly, have been considering these challenges for at least two decades. I remember when I was a junior officer at Naval Intelligence, there were already discussions about what happens when climate change really comes on strong and, and it destabilizes the world. Uh, mm-hmm. from, what are your thoughts from the perspective of a financial economics uh, re- reporter on the necessity of creating supply chains to move the global economy to a carbon-free energy option? We, we see some of the big major companies that are out there in the world today moving in this direction already. Microsoft, for instance, wants to be carbon negative, I think it is, by 2024. Uh, what have you seen in the capital markets that are driving us towards clean energy? I think the the business roundtable is uh, is a group of very dynamic, very forward thinking multinational corporation leaders who are really driving us in this direction. Yeah, business has actually been way ahead. I would say um, not of defense, but of you know of Congress and, and mainstream politics on pushing for climate change. Business, because it typically is multinational, realizes there's going to be regulation, there's going to be a price on carbon, um, certainly in Europe, probably in China and parts of Asia, um, and I think ultimately in the U.S. as well. Um, And if you start to think about a price on carbon as a sort of a tax on doing business, well, really far-flung supply chains start to make a lot less sense, right? Because if you're transporting things, you're using more energy, um, you know, that's more consumptive, then that becomes more expensive. So interestingly, I actually think that climate change is sort of a tailwind to some of these um, security issues that we're talking about that are really about doing some more localization, regionalization of production. And Actually, business was moving in that direction anyway, because um, consumers want things more quickly, markets change more quickly. Um, So it it makes sense a lot of times to kind of hub your production regionally, even before COVID or the conversation about climate change, you know, became as pronounced as it is. I was seeing a lot of companies rethink supply chains in China, maybe move them to Mexico. And, you know, Europeans were doing the same things. Eastern Europe has become a big production hub for Western European consumption. China itself has a has a um, stated policy. They call it the dual circulation economy. And it's about hubbing production and consumption. Uh, we might we have a little bit of a technical end on uh, on Rana's end. Uh, she's coming back up right now. Yeah, so, sorry about that, guys. I uh, that's okay. <laughs> I, I, would, I would have thought it was my 15 year old playing video games, but he's at school, so I can't can't blame him. Um, <laughs> anyway, but I was saying I think this this trend towards regionalization makes sense for all kinds of reasons. It gets products to market faster. It makes a certain kind of national security sense. Um, and uh, and it's also, you know, it's better for the environment. Yeah, and so for our audience, uh, you're listening to KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1. This is National Security This Week, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is Rana Faruhar, and we're discussing the financial and economic implications of American national security challenges. So, Rana, we've been talking a lot about uh, supply chains uh, today. Uh, one of your articles in Swamp Notes uh, talked about the weaponization of supply chains. Could you tell us... Uh, what you mean by that and how that works? 
Well, you know, this kind of goes back to your your first premise for this interview, which is that national security is economic security. Economic security is national security. And um, again, when the pandemic hit, you saw things that America didn't make anymore, like PPE, uh, like semiconductors. I mean, semiconductors is something you think, well, wait a minute, Silicon Valley, we don't make semiconductors anymore. Well, we make, we make uh, the software and we make the ideas and we make the patents, but we don't actually make the stuff anymore. That All the foundries um, are in Asia. And in fact, with semiconductors, it's kind of stunning to think about, but 92% of high-end semiconductors are made physically in Taiwan. Now, it's hard to think of a more contested right. place in the world than Taiwan. You know, I mean, this is a country that um, for sure is, is, I mean, I shouldn't say for sure, but I, I would bet that within five years, it, it's probably going to be taken over by, by um, mainland China. Uh, you know, even if not, it's the South China Sea is an incredibly contentious, difficult part of the world. Do you really want 92% of the things that run your world coming from there? Probably not. So um, starting to think about the power that owning the supply chain gives you is something that um, the Chinese have been thinking about for a long time. I mean, I actually, um, I, I'm friendly with a guy named Kai-Fu Lee, who is a Chinese venture capitalist. And he, he used to run Google in China when it was still allowed to operate freely. And we had a conversation about this maybe five years ago. I said, you know, are we going to come to a point where China and the U.S. are going to decouple? And he said, yeah, he thought that was going to happen. And I said, well, what's that going to mean for China? And he said, well, you know, I think China is actually going to do okay because we still have the bottom-up supply chain. You know, America has the brand that it can slap onto a product. But China has the factories and the supply chains and the resources to build those products. And so it's easier to slap a brand on something than it is to rebuild foundry capacity. Although you see with things like the CHIPS Act and um, what's going on in Europe that, you know, suddenly the West is waking up to the fact that, guess what, we, we do need chips and we do need to build them. Yeah, and, and I would submit uh, that China's decoupling effort has already begun with the Belt and Road Initiative. Uh, if that actually succeeds... Uh, the trade block that that helps to create is just massive. Uh, so on this weaponization of the supply chains, on the issue of China and Taiwan specifically, uh, I, I would submit, I don't know if you've heard this or not, but Lithuanian imports into China because Lithuania uh, recently out, allowed Taiwan to open up a, a representative office in Vilnius. But apparently all imports <laughs> into China that have even Lithuanian parts included uh, are, have been slapped uh, with some sanctions on them by the Chinese government. So German-made cars that have Lithuanian-made parts in them are being held up in imports going into China. So I think that's kind of the weaponization of, of trade and supply chains uh, on the part of China, which I find fascinating. I mean, that is absolutely fascinating. You so know, I would—can I, can I add one more yeah, thing? Absolutely, on absolutely. Um, Something that is very cutting edge that I think we're not thinking enough about is the way in which China is trying to decouple not just its physical supply chains, but its currency system yep. and its financial system. Yeah. So all these trade deals that we're talking about, and you mentioned the One Belt, One Road um, pathway, which is essentially a Chinese 
project to rebuild the old Silk Route, which went from China all the way into Southern Europe, and to kind of um, you know, basically create that as a new trade path, but also as a kind of an economic um, block, really, and a security block. You know, let's face it, that's a road straight into Europe. Um, when they sign trade deals, they're trying to settle as many of those deals as they can in their own currency rather than in the dollar. Now, one of the things that America still has, I would say, going for it hugely from a security standpoint is the power of the dollar because you know over 80% of international transactions are done in dollars. Well, as the Chinese do more and more in RMB, then the dollar becomes weaker, it becomes harder to service American debt. And when you start to have, a, you know, just today breaking a record $30 trillion of debt, and you have a currency and T-bills that people don't necessarily want to buy as much anymore, you start to have real problems. I mean, you start to have a scenario, I don't want to be alarmist, but I think it's not unrealistic in 10 years that you start to say, are we going to look back and say, gosh, we were starting to look like Weimar Germany, where, you know, you're, you've got a currency that's being degraded and you start to have massive political and security problems off the back of that. That's something I am thinking a lot about right now. Yeah, there, there's uh, I think it was Admiral Mullen, uh, former chairman of the Joint Chiefs, had actually talked about the fact that our national debt is one of the things that is mostly uh, most disturbing to him from a national security challenge. Uh, because we need to get that that under control. Another of your Swamp Notes articles talked about the coming clash between the United States and China. Uh, do you want to talk a little bit about that? We've been talking a little bit about how different China is than us and some of the challenges we face with China. I mean, where do you see this going? You, you looked at foreign affairs for a good part of your career and, and the economics piece. Uh, what, what are your thoughts on this? Well, um, to me, there's no question anymore that we are in a one-world two systems paradigm. You know, I mean, if you remember back um, a couple decades ago, Francis Fukuyama, the historian, wrote a book called The End of History. And we, yeah. you know, the Berlin Wall fell and we were like, yay, you know, liberal democracy has won. <laughs> um, no, maybe maybe we called that too quickly. Um, you know, there there is another form of uh, market capitalism, state-run autocratic market capitalism that is Chinese in nature. And that is a system that is being adopted very widely in many emerging markets, um, Africa, Latin America. Um, there's also, I would say, two entirely different technology paradigms um, com coming to bear. You know, you think about Chinese state surveillance capitalism in China. There are sensors everywhere, and by sensors, I mean S-E-N-S-O-R, you know, um, smart chips in cities that watch what people do and can track, you know, my eye movements as I look in the camera of my computer right now. And all this data is collected by the government, and there's no assumption of privacy. Um, now, that, some people believe, is going to fuel uh, Chinese growth in areas like AI, which yeah. are dependent on large amounts of data. Right. But... It's fundamentally antithetical to the idea of liberal democracy that people shouldn't have privacy, that they shouldn't have um, freedom. And so we have this clash of cultures, clash of civilizations, clash of economies coming where, you know, we are probably, if we want to support liberal democratic values, going to have to have an entirely different technology ecosystem. So then to me, the only question is, is it a bipolar world, meaning that the U.S. and Europe and other allies come together and craft 
a system that is in a line with, with democratic values? Um, or is it a tripolar system, perhaps, where the U.S. goes one way, Europe goes another way, and China and its allies go a third way? Um, I, I think there's no question economically you get more regionalization. Do you get a hot conflict of some kind? Um, you may be better placed to answer that question as a former <laughs> intelligence official than me, but I would just say that oftentimes when you have trade wars, they do become hot wars. Yeah. And so let's talk a little bit about uh, one of the big issues that's going on. It's, I mean, it's in the news continuously right now. Uh, Russia has 130,000 roughly troops uh, between Russian troops on the Russian border and troops in, in Belarus uh, on the border with Ukraine. What, what are the implications, the economic implications of a Russian invasion of Ukraine? Oh, I mean, huge, huge. Let's just start with the implications for Europe and and maybe back up for a minute and, and kind of deconstruct the, the relationship between Russia, Europe and the Ukraine, um, Ukraine, I should say. It's funny, I'll, I, I was in Ukraine uh, in the fall giving giving some talks about this and I kept saying the Ukraine, which is, you know, the, the old way of referring to it. It's Ukraine because that signifies independence, which is important in this in this context. Um, so Europe is very dependent on Russia and Ukraine for energy resources. Um, and uh, Ukraine is part of NATO, obviously the eastern flank of NATO. Um, but a few years back, the Germans made what I would consider to be a very ill-advised decision to build a pipeline to import Russian natural gas that bypasses Ukraine. Now, um, I, there, you know, there's been public reporting done about this. This was very beneficial to some certain German political interests. I think it was a disastrous decision for the European economy. The idea of being dependent on Russia for your energy resources, this is a country that has practiced petropolitics, has uh, used um, you know, withdrawing energy resources to starve countries economically, to drive up inflation in Europe, which is exactly what's happening right now. I mean, if you look at, we're experiencing global inflation right now. Some of it's about the pandemic in the US, some of it's about wage increases. In Europe, it's really about energy. You know, and if Europe had a better energy policy, which is what the 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 um, importing uh, gas through the Ukraine was supposed to to do to kind of create um, a different energy policy, a more um, uh, you know involving Ukraine and NATO and in, in European energy policy, making it safer. That's all falling apart now. Um, I think that if you have a hot conflict in Europe. Um, what you're what's going to happen for starters is it's going to bring nato to a push shove kind of a situation where all right you know we pulled out of afghanistan are we going to pull out of this as well i mean you know the biden administration is signaling support but if this were to be a prolonged conflict you know I, i'm not sure what the appetite in the u.s is for that um at the same time we really need european allies particularly germans on board now with with trade uh policy with technology policy. I mean, this is this is all connected. And I know it sounds kind of amorphous, but I guess in in laying out all these threads, I'm kind of trying to show just how interconnected the security and the economics are um, right now. That's what happens when we have globalization, right? We, it's like a, everybody <laughs> lives in the same spider web. <laughs> we can't yes. escape it. 
And and I think that's probably a, a, a great way to bring up this last topic. Uh, you know, so after World War II, the United States led the free world into an era of really strong economic development, a reduction in poverty and disease, and the pursuit of an ever-expanding liberal democratic order, which is sort of coming back to haunt us right now. Somewhere along the way, that 70-plus-year that effort came to an end, and we're seeing backtracking on liberal democracy in, in places around the world, even a rejection in some quarters uh, of the necessity for capitalism to be the driving force, even here in the American economic uh, model. How, how yes. should Americans be thinking about the shakeup in the world order right now? I mean, how, how are economics playing a role in these changes? Boy, that's a great question. Um, you know, I think there's two things. I, I think that we need to be humble and we need to recognize that we sometimes speak about America's choices. America needs to do this. America needs to do that with the idea that if we simply pull levers, the rest of the world is going to fall in line. That's not the, the case anymore. I mean, China has its own economic policy, its own foreign affairs policy. It is, I think, has has reached sort of, um, what do they call it when you launch the rocket? You know, you, you get you get outside the gravitational pull of the planet. I mean, they're, they're in their own ecosystem now, and they can function. I, I think it would be painful if there were a major trade or currency war with the U.S., but I do think China could, could survive that. Um, yeah. What I think America needs to do is say, what can we do at home? What can we do to strengthen ourselves at home? And I hear this all the time when I'm in Europe from allies. They want an economically strong America because that is a politically um, strong America. That's an America that can guarantee not only its own security, but, but that of allies. You know, if, if we're a basket case at home with dysfunctional politics and Gridlock which we kind of are right now. <laughs> which we which we are right now. You know that that is a national security issue. Yeah. Because then allies are you know they're they're going to be potentially pulled into the orbit of of another power. Which actually you can already see in in parts of southern Europe in particular, Greece, Italy. You know, taking infrastructure and development money from China. You know, this is already happening to a certain extent. Yeah. Uh, you know, Germany cutting certain kinds of trade deals with China. It's it's um. So we, I think we have a moment of reflection and, and rebuilding at home that needs to happen. I've had some guests come on uh, in recent months where we talk about the fact that uh, America may or may not want to actually develop a true grand strategy uh, going forward. Uh, containment of uh, the spread of communism, really, this, uh, of the Soviet Union was sort of a unifying cross-purposes uh, bipartisan agreement on that for, for many, many decades uh, but that all went away when the Soviet Union finally collapsed in 91. And we really haven't had a cohesive through strategy, a grand strategy since then. And uh, I think that's starting to show. <laughs> it is starting to show. And, you know, if I were going to, you know, build a grand strategy in America, I think I might look back in our history to our to our founding, to our origins and say, you know, this was a country that was built on um, on freedom and access, you know, access for small businesses, access for individuals. I think um, I think that some of the antitrust efforts that are underway are a good thing. I think thinking about building an inclusive economic ecosystem where there's not five companies running, you know, half the S&P is a good thing. I think um, investing in areas you talked very early on about the dying coal industry, retraining those coal miners. That would be a good thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. All of that. 
So Rana Farhar, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, what are you currently working on? I know I think you have a a new book coming out, a third book. Uh, I, I it's do. The homecoming. I do. Why don't you tell us about yeah. that book? Oh sure. Well, you know, we've been touching on a lot of things in this conversation that the book's about. It's called Homecoming: The Path to Prosperity in a Post-Global World, and it's about um, about this new and more regional world that we're entering and how we can not just survive but thrive in it. So. Um, lots of stories of entrepreneurs and policymakers that are trying to change things. Um, lots of stories about challenges, but also about opportunities. So it's out um, uh, October 6th from Crown, and um, maybe I'll come back on your show and talk about yes, it. Yes, I'd love to have you back on again. Uh, when have you, have you already completed the manuscript, or are you still finalizing the manuscript? Manuscript is with the copy editors, so okay. um, I'll be getting back a you know a big pot, two-inch pile with lots of red marks soon. <laughs> <laughs> I know how that goes. I know how that goes. And and where can our listeners find your your two previous books, "Don't Be Evil" and uh, the second one, "Makers and Takers"? Um, you can find those on on any kind of online booksellers. Um, they're published by Crown, and uh, again, really talk a lot about the issues we've been discussing here. And our listeners could find out more about you and your books directly on your website. Is that right? Yes, RanaFarruhar.com. Thanks for giving me a chance to plug it. <laughs> and, and, and just so our, our listeners know, how, how do you spell your last name? It's F like Frank, O-R-O-O-H-A-R. Okay, so RanaFarruhar.com. Thank you, Rana Farruhar, for sharing your thoughts and insights with us today. This has been a great show. Thank you so much, John. Have a great week. You too. And, and so that closes this week's edition of National Security This Week. We're on KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1. I'm your host, John Olson. Thank you for joining us today. I look forward to sharing time with you again next Wednesday morning at 9 a.m. Thank you for being a listener to National Security This Week here on KYMN Radio. Have a great finish to your week, everybody. Take care. You've been listening to National Security This Week a weekly show looking into issues of American national security with the host, John Olson. Listen every Wednesday at 9 a.m. for National Security This Week.